There's Bibles at the back. If you want to grab one, you can run up there and grab one right now. Um, but we are looking at James 4 together. And it's sentences 1 through to 12. And it says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is to, to no purpose that the Scriptures say he, he, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy. And um, it's my privilege to be able to speak to you from James 4. And um, just before we get into that, I just want to, um, really going off the back of what Gav was saying about the internship program this year, just what a blessing it's been. If you put the hours down, we're up to, at this point in the year, almost 2,000 hours that they've volunteered combined, which you've felt indirectly or directly the blessing of. And, um, and it's been a massive thing to be a part of that and to see God's work in their lives as well. Um, so if you get the chance to thank them, please do. Um, and also, if you, are, if you are thinking about it, I'd encourage you to really pray and think about it and see how God might be, might be planning to use you in His kingdom over the next year. Um, so we'd love to hear from you. December 15 is the cutoff date for that. So um, pray about it, but don't pray for too long. The other thing is, uh, Introducing Jesus finished on Monday night. And there are a couple of people I want to thank for that. So that was five nights. We had over 16 guests with us over that time. It was great to be able to do. It was a great first run of it as well. Um, and if you were there, it was a great feed each and every week. So I just want to thank Chloe, who set up everything every week for us as well. So she's here and made everything look great. Um, Beck was also on setup and running discussions at tables along with Ryan as well. And Elle's not a part of this congregation, but if you get the chance to thank her, she and Marlon made the meals every single week for almost 20 people. That's an incredible amount of work, and she did it all under budget. So, and it was amazing food. She wasn't skimping on flavor. So look, it was a great thing to do, and uh, I can't wait for the next one, which will come around in probably March next year or April at the latest, but you'll hear more about that as we get closer. But today we're looking at James chapter 4, and as we've seen each week, James is really concerned to see the church who says, I have faith in Jesus, live that out in practical ways. And last week, uh, we saw that faith meant wisdom, and this week we see that it means humility. Humility being the opposite of pride. I don't know if you've ever thought how closely pride and madness are to each other. It probably occurred to me when I watched the movie A Beautiful Mind for the first time just how closely 
Pride and madness look like one another. If you haven't seen the movie, uh, it was an Academy Award-winning film, and whatever your opinion of Russell Crowe, whether you think he was a New Zealander or Australian, depending on how he's behaving that week, uh, it doesn't really matter, you can still enjoy the film. It's a a kind of a fictionalised biography about a uh, a Nobel Prize-winning mathematician who basically, sadly, for a large part of his life, loses his mind. And for this period, as he descends into paranoia and madness, what you see is the brilliant mind that he had been given was kind of put to the wrong end. That what it does is it sends him in a spiral of conspiracy theories about the government being after him that eventually almost destroys his life and his relationships and everything around him. But the crazy thing in watching it was that you could see that what happens with paranoia is basically the ego swells to a supersize. So the way you think of yourself suddenly becomes so large that you see everything in reference to yourself. So two people talking or whispering over there are not just two people talking, they're whispering about you, they're conspiring against you. That car that just went past wasn't a car, it was a government agent keeping tabs on you. That noise that you heard in your house was probably a bug device that was actually listening in on you. Suddenly, it's like the whole world is all about me and it's a conspiracy against me. And that is the, that is the sadness of going mad, that everything becomes about you and you become paranoid. But isn't it the case that in gentle ways, we too display this kind of madness of pride? Have you ever kind of organized an event And on the day of the event or leading up to it, you find out it's going to be raining. And you're like, of course. You know, the one time I plan an event, it's going to rain. Like kilotons of water were conspiring against you for that single moment. Of all that, you know, that there was a major weather event and it was really all just to ruin your party. Or you're watching sport and your team's winning and you go to the fridge or the toilet to take a break and you come back and they're losing. You think... That's weird, but it couldn't be all about me. But you keep watching, and then they start to get the advantage. You leave the room for some other reason. You come back, and they're losing again. And suddenly you realize, no, actually, of the millions or even billions of people watching this international sports event, it really comes down to whether I'm in the room watching it on my screen or not. That is really what's going on here. Now, of course, we know that when you think about it, I'll say it out loud, that that's madness, But I think all of us have this deep down suspicion that, yeah, maybe the world is really all about me. Probably all of us, at some point or another, have thought, I wonder if I am in the Truman Show and everyone around me is just an actor and this is a conspiracy and a show where everything really is about me. There's something about us that suspects that maybe we really are the center of the universe, the only and true center of the universe. But the Bible has a word for this and it's called pride. Pride is, as one preacher says, contending for supremacy with God. When we contend for the center of the universe, when we suspect that maybe it's us who should be at the middle of the universe rather than God himself. And humility is when we see God in his right place as the center of all things, the one to whom all glory belongs. Humility is when we see things accurately. Pride is when we see ourselves as the almighty center of the universe. John Stott, a Christian author who's gone to glory now, said at every stage of our Christian growth, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. 
I pray that as we get into the passage this morning in James 4, that we'd see that more clearly than ever. Let's pray as we open God's Word together. Father, we praise you that you are glorious beyond measure, that you are unmatched in power and glory and might, that you rule the universe and you rule with justice and yet you are gracious and merciful, that you are loving and compassionate, that you are worthy to be the center of all things. And Father, we just pray that as we open your word that you would teach us that we are not and that it is good not to be so, that you would teach us the joy of humility and the blessing it is to put to death pride and by grace to live in humility before you. And Father, we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, James opens this section by explaining what it looks like when pride starts to take hold of our lives and what it does to the life of a community. And look at what it says in James 4, 1-2 as he writes to a church. He says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Pride causes fights and quarrels for the simple reason that when one person who believes they're at the center of the universe meets another person who thinks they're at the center of the universe, there's going to be conflict. A solar system cannot have two centers of gravity. There will be conflict. There is meant to be one center, God, around whom all of humanity orbit, but pride interrupts with that. Pride says, I want to be right. I want to be the center. Think about all the major fights and quarrels that you've been in. Weren't they mostly because you wanted to be right? And not only that you wanted to be right, but you wanted the other person to acknowledge how right you were. See, James here is saying that and not that Christians shouldn't have conflict, but he's saying that there are fights and quarrels that happen mostly because of pride. Pride causes fights. It makes us go too far in a fight. It makes us want to win. It makes us want to put the other person down. It makes us want to hurt people. We want to punish them. When it comes to arguments, we want them to cower before our intellectual prowess and admit just how wrong they were. Pride means you fight past the point of a productive discussion because you want blood. Pride may also cause you to punish by going sullen and quiet because things didn't go exactly your way. Pride says, I'm at the center of the universe and you have profaned my glory and you are going to pay for that. Pride causes fights and quarrels. But he says it also does this because your passions are at war within you. Our desires are disordered. Pride kind of knocks everything into disorder. When our hearts are not aligned with God, they fall into chaos. They want everything. We are not content. And so we blame others for our lack of contentment and it causes disunity. Look at how Paul Tripp describes what happens when a prideful heart becomes entitled. Look what he says here. He says, first, you feel entitled to that desire. To entitle means to give someone a legal right or a just claim to receive or do something. When we, when, a desire, when, we, when we name a desire as a need, we're basically telling God that we have legal right or just claim to fill in your desire. Once you feel entitled to something or someone, you believe it's your right to demand it. After entitlement and demand comes judgment. We'll judge the love of others by their willingness and or ability to provide for us what we've declared a need. If it's provided quickly, 
I treat you with respect and love, but if you delay or refuse or are unable to provide, I make life difficult for you. This is why we fight. We feel like we're the center of the universe, that we have legal rights that we're entitled to, and when we don't get them, other people must pay. What do we feel entitled to? Respect, free time, sex, money, an easy life, a relationship, cleanliness and order, you name it. The list is endless. These are all good things, but pride says, no, these aren't just good things. These are my entitlement. These are the things that I deserve, and if I do not get them, someone needs to pay. It is the duty of others to provide them. So what happens when people don't give them? Fights. Fights and quarrels. But I don't know if you saw James's language there, but he, he slipped in a word that should have, caught us by, should have caught us off guard. You see what he says there? He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So this is the disorder that pride brings in our life when we're at the center of the universe. But then he said, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, it seems like things escalated kind of quickly there. We're just talking about fights and disagreements and then suddenly there's murder and whatnot. Is he saying that the people in this church are murdering one another? I mean, it could be. Entitlement certainly can lead to murder. I mean, look at that list again. Have people killed for these things? For respect? For free time? For sex? For money? For an easy life? A relationship or cleanliness and order? Sadly, that has happened. And so is this what's happening in this church? Is this, is this church like a, it's like a Tarantino film? It's just a bloodbath. People are fighting and quarreling and murdering? Well, look, I don't think so for two reasons. One is we don't have anything recorded either within the Bible in the book of Acts or external to the Bible to say that one of the churches had a big issue with murders. In fact, Christians were known for being peaceable. They were more known in the first three centuries for dying for Jesus rather than for murdering. So that would seem unlikely. But the second one is if you know the book of James, you'll know that he draws heavily from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, one of his, really his most famous sermon. And, uh, and in the book of James... We read Jesus saying these words about anger. In Matthew 5.21, we read this. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus connects anger and murder. He's saying to a group of Jewish people who knew the Old Testament, hey, you've heard it said don't murder, but I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you've murdered. You'll be liable to judgment. Now, if you're here and skeptical about Christianity, this might be one of the reasons you don't like what Jesus says. You're like, see, typical. It's just taking things way out of proportion. Being angry and murdering are completely different things. I mean, one of uh, the, a famous atheist, so Christopher Hitchens, one of his criticisms of Jesus' teachings was that he convicted people of thought crime. Is that what's really going on here? Well, I think if you read what Jesus is saying, what he's saying is actually pretty logical. He's saying, actually, these two things are connected. One of them is in its infancy. The other is full-grown, but they are the same species. Anger and murder go together. Think of it in this way. If you've seen Stranger Things, and you should have, uh, you know in one of the seasons, one of the characters, and this isn't giving away too much plot, so don't stress about that, one of the characters gets uh, like a, it's basically a, a flesh-eating just monster of a thing, 
And it's, um, it's in its infancy stage, so it just looks like a tiny lizard, but it's called a demogorgon, and later on it's just going to eat people en masse. But um, just leave that alone for just a minute. But as, as the viewer, you know what's going on. So this little kid has this incredibly dangerous thing, and he's nurturing it, and he's cuddling it, and he's putting it next to his bed, and he's feeding it. And it's stressful because you know how dangerous this thing is. You know what species it is. And you know that if he knew what it was, he wouldn't be treating it like that. In fact, he would try and kill it now before it's too big to contain. That's what James is saying about pride. That's what Jesus is saying about anger. He's saying when it's full grown, it will murder. And we know that to be true. So he's saying it's dangerous. Anger and envy are murder just waiting to happen. Don't entertain it like it's a pet. Don't nourish and feed it. Don't keep it in your home. Don't live with it as though it were a friend. He's saying these things are not your friends. He's saying pride that leads to envy and quarreling and all of this, when it's full grown, will be murder. It should have no place in a community of faith. It's not to be treated like a pet. So here he says this is the first consequence of pride. It leads to fights and quarrels and murder. But there is a second. Look what he says about how pride impacts prayer. In James 4, 2-5, we read this. He says, You do not have, it'll come up on the screen for you, James 4, 2-5, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Pride will cause us not to pray. When I deep down believe that ultimately I'm at the center of the universe, then ultimately I trust that if anything's going to happen, I'm going to be the one who does it. I rely on my skills, my abilities, my relationships, my resources, my mind. I rely on what I can do to get things done. And so I'm disinclined to go and ask God to do things. And James says, look, there are things that if you just ask for them, God would give them, but you don't even ask. Pride can take such a hold of us that the very storehouses of heaven are just waiting to be poured open and we will not even ask because we rely on ourselves. Pride leads to prayerlessness. But he says even worse than that, sometimes it can take such a hold that even when we finally get to breaking point, when we finally will admit that we actually need help, that we've run out of resources, we can't do it ourselves, that we sometimes go to God with the kind of prayer that he can't even answer. Instead of going to him saying, I'm sorry, I had it all wrong, I'm not the center of the universe, we go to him and say, God, your universe is out of order. All the planets are meant to be orbiting me. They're not. Can you fix it? James calls this adulterous prayer. A prayer that has a greater allegiance to the world than to God and His truth. A prayer that He cannot honor. In the movie Amadeus, they draft up the movie so that these two characters are kind of at war with each other. There's Mozart, who's a bit of a playboy, casually brilliant, just a genius in every way, Renaissance man, that sort of thing. Then there's Salieri, who's basically like, uh, the jealous, hard-working nerd, you know? And sort of like, you know when there was a spate of punk songs and the theme was always like, 
this really like nice kid who keeps getting friend zone and then the jock gets the pretty girl, like you know that sort of thing? They kind of had them pitched like that and Salieri was like the nerdy kid who worked really hard. Anyway, it's not true by the way, this, none, of, none of it's true but it was a great way to sort of draft the story. But there's a point where Salieri is talking about his prayer life and he talks about the kind of prayers that he offers up to God and he says this, while my father prayed earnestly to God to protect commerce, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I'll give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. Amen. It's an adulterous prayer. It's a prayer to say to God, God, make me the center of the universe. And it's a prayer that God cannot abide. He cannot. God cannot honor this type of prayer. See, our prayers might not be as obviously self-centered as Salieri's, but sometimes it's more subtle. Have you ever audited your prayers? See, sometimes prayers go unanswered because God is building patience in us. Sometimes they go unanswered and we're not sure why. But James is saying sometimes they go unanswered because we are praying with a wrong heart. Our desire is that God would be a co-conspirator with us in making us the center of the universe and he cannot do it. He cannot do that and at the same time be God. That's why James says, look at what he says here in James 4, 4 to 5. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? God is a jealous God. And again, you might be thinking, so what, hang on. We just read at the beginning of the passage, when pride takes hold, we become envious and all of this, but now God gets to be a jealous God. So he's the God who says, do what I say, but not what I do. Isn't it the case, though, that there is a right and a wrong jealousy. That wrong jealousy is when we feel entitled to something that is not our desert, but there is a right and appropriate jealousy. So, for example, in the marriage relationship, is it right for the husband or wife to be jealous if their spouse goes off with another person? Of course. In fact, if they were unconcerned about that, you would think there's something dysfunctional about this marriage. It doesn't give them the right to punish the other person, but it's an appropriate feeling. God has made us to be in relationship with him, and he is worthy of all praise. He cannot honor prayers that would make us the center of the universe. It is an adulterous prayer. He cannot be a co-conspirator in it. Think about it like this. If a, if a, wife, if a husband were to say to his wife, could you give me a lift to my mistress's house? That would be a desire that she could not honor. So you couldn't say yes to that and honor the marriage at the same time. There are some prayers that are like that request, where God says, I could not be God and yet honor that prayer at the same time. James is saying, be careful. Sometimes pride can take such a hold that even the things we pray, a seemingly holy act, will be infected by it to the point where God cannot answer it. So what do we do with all this? The fighting, the quarreling, the prayerlessness, the adulterous prayers. What do we do with this? Well, James says in, in James 4.6, what we're to do with this. In James 4, sentence 6, he writes, 
but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace is what we need. Grace is the antidote to pride. Grace from God is what transforms pride and turns our lives upside down. A few weeks ago, we looked at mercy. Mercy was the idea of not getting a punishment you do deserve. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. When you get mercy and grace together, you get the gospel. See, this is the gospel of grace. God made me. He loves me. He placed me in a beautiful world around beautiful people in order to enjoy them to his glory. In sin, I've rejected him. I cut myself off from the ruler of the universe and from the very source of life. And I brought upon myself eternal death and separation from him forever. And instead of leaving me in that helpless state, he intervened. He sent his own son to die in my place, the son whom he loves, so that I might be made new again and restored to relationship with him and to find life eternal. Grace is humbling. If you understand the gospel, it is incredibly humbling, isn't it? One of the biggest objections to the Christian gospel is that actually it is, it is so humbling. To have to admit that I'm a sinner who committed wrong and I was in a helpless state and needed the very help of God is not an easy thing to admit. You have to swallow your pride. Grace is humbling. To say, I don't deserve anything except hell and in Jesus, I get everything. And grace kills entitlement. Grace transforms our heart to the point where we can look at a good thing and say, that's a good thing that I would like to have and I want to have it, but I don't need it. That actually I have everything I need in Jesus. And so that means that certain things that I don't get in life, it hurts or it's difficult, but I'm okay and I don't need to punish other people because of it. See, grace is what we need. And it says here, God is willing to give it. He gives more grace. More than that, he says, in pride, when we contend for supremacy with him, he must work against us. That's why pride is such an unpleasant experience, isn't it? I mean, you know the feeling when pride really takes hold of you, when you become an angry, bitter, defensive person because of pride, that it's not a pleasant experience. God has made it that way so that we might turn to him and receive grace the healing, transforming power of grace. Grace is a Copernican revolution. If you've ever been sitting in a meeting where someone's uh, looking to, uh, you know, make themselves sound important in a meeting and they've said something like, well, it's a complete Copernican revolution and you've just sort of nodded along. The, um, this is what it actually refers to if you're unaware of it. When people talk about a Copernican revolution, they're talking about something that was just a simple thought that basically changed everything. And it was to do with Nicholas Copernicus, who was a Renaissance mathematician. And just before his death, he published a, a book called On the Revolutions of the Celestial Seers. Before Copernicus, everyone thought the Earth was the center of the solar system and everything rotated around the Earth. Now, there were certain sort of nat natural phenomena that didn't make sense in that theory. But for the most part, people felt like it held together. What he proposed was called the heliocentric vision, which was the idea that the sun was actually at the center of the solar system and everything else revolved around that. Now, once people realized that, once they understood that thought and how much data that actually explained, they quickly moved from the geocentric to the heliocentric vision because they're like, this makes sense. And the idea of a Copernican revolution is like it's a very simple thought that completely changes everything. 
Grace is that Copernican revolution. It's the simple idea that, hey, maybe you're not the center of the universe and God is. And once you get that, everything seems to revolve around it. Everything seems to make sense. That's why James says what he says next in James 4, 7 to 10. In James 4, 7 and 7, he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When we submit to his rule and give him the reins over everything, it actually starts to make sense. Life starts to make sense. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As we get near to God, the God of grace, we see that actually what makes sense is that he is the center of all things. And that as we start to bring our life under his truth, that all the planets of our life start to orbit properly as they should. When we take ourselves out of the center, things start to work. It says here, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. In the strangest and weirdest way, when we lose our life to him, we actually find it. As counterintuitive as that is. When we see that we are not the sinner, we see that he is, it starts to transform us completely. Think about the impact grace has on you. Say you're a person who feels entitled to respect for whatever reason. You didn't get it from your parents or in primary school or whatever it was, and you feel like, I deserve respect. You put yourself at the center. You believe you're entitled to respect from others. You become very sensitive to criticism. You can't stand when other people succeed, even if it's in another field, somehow it seems to affect you like happiness is a currency and they're taking some of yours. You quietly rejoice when others fail. You can't stop an argument even when it's gone too far because you always have to be right. You're angry and sensitive and brooding. Even people who do respect you will keep a safe distance from you. Then you realize... I'm not the center of the universe, God is. I'm just a sinner who needed grace and it changes everything. Suddenly I can take criticism because, oh, I'm a sinner. I agree with with God's indictment and I don't have to be so sensitive about it because he loves me anyway. When people praise my work, it's nice, but it doesn't go to my head. I'm not addicted to it. I'm aware that my gifts are God given and that I didn't choose to be born with them and so I can just give him the praise. I'm happy for others when they succeed because we're not in competition for being the center of the universe. We can all happily orbit around God. And even when people are being prideful, instead of being furious about it, I can just feel compassion for them because I know that that's not how God has designed us to live. I don't have to take it personally. I care more about God's commands to love and forgive than my own desire to be right and to be vindicated. This is the grace revolution. This is how when we understand grace, it can completely transform our lives and the way that we relate to others. We can be a person of peace rather than someone who causes more fights and quarrels and drama. And it can lead us then to the next point that James seems to make that seems to be out of order, but as we'll see, it makes sense. In James 4, 11 to 12, look at what he writes. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What is James talking about here when he says to speak evil of someone? It's more than just speaking meanly to someone or speaking rudely about someone. To speak evil of here, he's saying, is to speak in judgment. To speak evil is, the, is, is to wish them harm or judgment to fall upon them. When you feel enmity towards someone, it's often the case that you'll desire that they would be punished for it. This can be in small ways. I remember reading one paper on anger that talked about a man who had, there was a colleague at work that he had a massive falling out with. And he had, he had developed over time an incredible amount of bitterness and anger. And what he used to do driving home from work was to drive out of the way, several kilometers out of the way to drive past the man's house and flip the bird at his house as he drove past. And you think, what kind of insanity is that, right? Why would you do that? But thinking deeper on it, it was a gesture of anger and vengeance towards that person, even though they probably never even found out about it. It was this sense of, I want bad to happen to them. The idea of speaking evil to someone is the desire that someone would be punished. Have you ever replayed an argument in your head, but this time around, you completely obliterate them verbally? And they cower before your verbal dominance. And they admit just how wrong to the core they have always been for all of their life before you. Why do we do that? We want, we want people to pay when they've hurt us. We want people to pay for what they've done. And not often in terms of justice, but more than that. James is saying, humility means saying, it means leaving vengeance to God. To say, God, you are the one on the throne. You will judge the living and the dead. And whom you judge will be judged rightly. I forego the ability to judge or pronounce judgment on another person because in humility I realize I am underqualified for the task. I leave it all to you. He says here we are to be ones who are just doers of the law. We're not the ones to sit in the judgment seat on the throne of the universe just throwing thunderbolts. That we are to be the ones who humbly sit under God's law, who love as he loved, forgive as he forgives, and we leave judgment up to him. James says, speak no evil of another person. Don't desire that others would be punished. To leave it up to God. So where do we land on this? Well, in terms of growing in humility, there are really three things from this passage that James is urging us to do. The first is to pray. To pray is an act of humility. It's an admission that we are powerless and that we need God's help. The second is to draw near to God. The more you meet with the God of grace, the harder it is to be prideful. The more you behold just the, the greatness and the majesty of God, the harder it is to believe that you are the great and majestic one who rules the universe. And thirdly, is to submit to his ways and to forego judgment. To resist the temptation to wish dark punishments upon your enemies and to say, God, I know that's in your hands. I know what you have commanded for me to do. And I leave justice up to you. May he give us the grace to grow in humility. Let me finish with the words of John Stott that I started with. He says, at every stage of our Christian growth, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Let's pray that God would strengthen us to be humble people. Father God, we praise you that you are a God who loves us 
who loves us too much to leave us in the sin of pride, who loves us too much to leave us in the delusion that we are at the center of the universe, who loves us enough to reveal that you are the center and then when you are, that things go well, that things are in their right proportion and order. Father, lead us to be a people who trust you, who follow you, who believe that you are worthy of all glory and who are willing to humbly serve you and to submit to your ways, knowing that your ways are higher than our ways. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to do this, that it might be for your glory. Amen.